Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And today, I'm going to introduce a double interview special. We put together this show for the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, but thought you might enjoy it as well. Uh, I recommend subscribing to the Building Local Power show uh, for provocative interviews that you cannot find elsewhere about stopping monopolies and reclaiming power in our communities. You're about to hear me and my colleague Hibba setting up another interview about the T-Mobile and Sprint merger and then talking about 5G more generally, as well as why policymakers and frankly lots of people should listen to what analysts on Wall Street are saying. That's even if we strongly prefer our Main Street businesses and we're worried about the power of Wall Street, it's still smart to listen to these analysts. We'll talk about that toward the end of the show. Um, too many people, I think, listen to what the big telephone and cable companies are saying in their advertising and to policymakers, uh, but they're ignoring what those same big monopolies tell Wall Street. Um, but the reason we should listen to what they tell Wall Street is that they can get punished for lying to investors uh, while we, we know, if you've been paying attention, that there are very few consequences uh, for lying to us or for lying to policymakers. Uh, you can walk into a state capital and say whatever you want, um, but if you're a big monopoly of lying, um, you're still going to be able to take meetings and get meetings with anyone you want. Uh, that's just how it works out there. So uh, the Wall Street analysts often have, I think, insight that would be useful. And uh, so we'll talk about it toward the end, but we're going to start off uh, talking more about the T-Mobile and Sprint merger and, and work our way in that direction. So I hope you enjoy it. Hey, everyone. It's Hiba, ILSR's communications manager. And today on the podcast, uh, we have Chris with me here. Hey, Chris. Hey, Hiba. How's it going? Good. How are you? You know, um, I'm, I'm a little bit worried. Uh, I, I think we're talking about the uh, 2020 election. I didn't, I didn't prepare a whole lot. It's, it's 476 days away, and so I'm, I'm getting a little bit nervous about it. I'm not sure how ready I am to talk about it today. Don't worry, Chris. You can just catch up watching all of the political comedy commentary. Like, <laughs> I don't even watch the debates anymore. I just watch like the Daily Show recap of it. It's fine. <laughs> but that's not actually our topic for today. <laughs> oh, whew. I was I was really worried when I woke up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you actually interviewed some folks to talk about the T-Mobile and Sprint merger, uh, which is a topic we've touched on before. Um, so my question for you is, why isn't this over yet? <laughs> um, I would say because uh, we've gotten to a, a point in time in which um, if you're powerful enough, you, you kind of can't lose. You can just drag it out. Um, this merger, I think, is more than a year old now um, or approaching it. And uh, I think many of us thought we'd know if we'd won or lost. Um, and by the way, winning means preserving competition. <laughs> uh, losing would be losing competition in this sector. So, um, you know, in an ordinary time, we might have seen a decision made, but uh, we are not living in ordinary times. I, I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's even an understatement right now. <laughs> So you interviewed two people. A little bit later, we're going to hear from Blair um, Levine. But first, Gigi San, why her? Gigi has very unique characteristics. I mean, not only is she very knowledgeable on these, but anyone who knows her knows that she also has this characteristic of, of kind of in-your-face honesty, I would say, um, which is that um, she sticks to what she believes, and she's not going to sugarcoat it, and she's not going to try to 
change her message based on who she's talking to so much. She's going to tell you what she thinks. And I've always really respected that. Uh, she's spending a lot of time working on this issue. Um, Gigi is someone who uh, we'll talk in the interview briefly about her background, but but she's um, spent a lot of time in public interest um, telecom and working at the FCC recently, the Federal Communications Commission. And so I thought she'd be a, a perfect person to to discuss this issue with. Yeah, I definitely get that from her listening to the interview. At one point, she calls the merger a soap opera, which I thought was a fantastic comparison. Um, it's clearly very drawn out, like we've said. Otherwise, do you think that's a fair comparison? I, I think it is a, a fair comparison. I mean, <laughs> kind of like in, in a soap opera, you might have a, a person that is is buried alive, and then they're they're crawling their way out. Um, you know, it's something that you would think of as unprecedented in the course of human affairs, more or less. And um, this merger has had many unprecedented uh, aspects to it. Um, so I, I think that's accurate. It's 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 an interesting cast of characters that are involved, including now apparently uh, an executive from Dish, uh, who is well-known within the industry and uh, may be essential in terms of crafting some form of compromise. Um, so absolutely, I don't recommend that people tune in and really try to follow this thing super closely. There's there's better uses of your time. Um, following all of ILSR's work, for instance, would be a <laughs> better use of people's time. Um, but I think that this is really important because what we're seeing is a very important decision that will have important implications for how the market is structured moving forward when it comes to uh, broadband internet access, when it comes to the mobile services that not only do we depend on in many cases, but also uh, that may allow for significant innovation. And I think changing the market structure uh, could result in less than that. We're never going to know. You know, we're only going to live in one timeline, but, um, but this is a key part to take a look at how these decisions are made, I think. Right. And I think... Gigi and Blair do a great job of making that case. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about Gigi? Yes. Yeah, so Gigi is right now the distinguished, and I, I think that's accurate. She is the distinguished fellow at Georgetown Law Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy. And she's also a Benton Senior Fellow and Public Advocate. Uh, Benton is a public interest uh, telecom-focused foundation that uh, we've done a lot of work with over the years and have uh, we hold them in high regard. So uh, she's working for very well-reputable organizations, um, you know, unlike me, who's constantly trying to bring ILA. Sars <laughs> reputation down. So um, I think this would be a good time to jump into that interview. Sounds good. Gigi, it's wonderful to talk to you again. Can you remind me what you were doing at the FCC when you were working with Chairman Wheeler? Well, I basically had three jobs. Uh, my official title was counselor to the chairman, but I was number one, a policy advisor because I do have expertise in, in telecommunications and media technology policy. I also was the main outreach person to all third parties. So be it public interest, academics, industry, if they wanted to talk to the chairman's office, they mostly came through me. Uh, and thirdly, I talked a lot to the press off the record, which as a longtime public interest advocate and somebody who never saw a camera they didn't want to be in front of, hmm. uh, was kind of interesting to be off the record all the time. Sure. And and you mentioned longtime public interest advocate. You've been just, I mean, your heart and soul has been in, in broadband telecom policy forever, it seems like. Yeah. Don't make me out to be older than I am. But yes, I've been, <laughs> I've been doing this 
practiced work for over 30 years. Um, after two years in private legal practice, which I hated, uh, I went and worked for a public interest law firm that no longer exists uh, called uh, Media Access Project, and I litigated cases mostly uh, at the uh, D.C. Circuit, the, the, the Federal Court of Appeals here, uh, on behalf of diverse media, consumer rights. You know, in those days, and I'm going to be dating myself, it was, you know, the issues were mostly around, you know, trying to promote diverse ownership of media and trying to make sure that broadcasters and cable operators serve the public interest. The Internet was really... You know, really only a dream in in scientists and academics' eyes. And it wasn't until around 1998, 1999, where the Internet started to become a thing. Uh, And with it, my focus certainly shifted because I was kind of tired of trying to make, uh, you know, top-down command and control media behave and saw the Internet as as a way to, to empower individuals and it does a lot of that. Obviously, there's some other things we don't like. But um, for Media Access Project, I went to the Ford Foundation where I started uh, the funding program that now funds a lot of uh, public interest advocates like me. Uh, and then I started a, an organization called Public Knowledge where I worked for as a CEO for 12 years. And then I went off to the FCC uh, for three years to work for Chairman Wheeler. And since then, I've been a, a fellow at Georgetown and Again, a public advocate, but kind of like a public advocate without an organization. So I'm just kind of out there, um, you know, as my own little part of the resistance, trying to make sure that, you know, the Internet stays open, uh, that competition flourishes, and that uh, people get to speak without gatekeepers getting in, in the way. So with regard to uh, a major merger that you're working on, it's T-Mobile and Sprint, Mm. what is the big deal with that? Well, it's a huge deal because, you know, the wireless market actually started out with eight carriers. (laughs) And now we're down to four. And four has worked, I would say, quite well. Um, Not fantastically, not probably not as well as five or six, but um, it's worked well. And it's hard to overestimate the impact that T-Mobile and Sprint have had on that market because they have not only pushed Verizon and AT&T, who are sort of the two big behemoths, to do things like cut out two-year contracts, unlock their phones, provide more family-friendly plans, but they also compete with each other. And they compete with each other for a segment of the population that AT&T and Verizon don't really care about. And that's value-conscious and low-income consumers. So if you take away Sprint, okay, if you combine Sprint into T-Mobile, T-Mobile's incentives change. They go from, you know, wanting to beat up on the big guys and compete for the value-conscious consumer with Sprint to wanting to be like the big guys. And in fact, you know, the record at the Federal Communications Commission on this merger, and this merger now has been going on, the proceedings have been going on for over a year. It's a very long, drawn-out thing, and I'm happy to talk about the process because the process, at a minimum, is weird uh, and at a maximum is is just wrong, quite honestly. Uh, <laughs> From weird to but, wrong. But it, yeah, but I mean, wrong, I'm being kind. Let's put it that way. But, you know, the, the important thing is the, the, the records show that if these two entities combine, prices could go up as much as 15%. Right. And the part that I think really gets to me is is this idea of Sprint and T-Mobile are 
actually competing for low-income customers, which is something that we do not see in the, in the wireline market. And so it seems pretty important. It's extremely important. So if you were to combine these two entities, Sprint owns Virgin Mobile and Boost Mobile, and they are what are called prepaid companies. So in other words, these are ones where you, know, you buy a number of minutes or you buy a certain amount, uh, you, know, you buy a card for $30, that you, that you use for the month, as opposed to many of us are postpaid, which means, you know, you just get your bill and whatever it is, you just pay it. Uh, and those prepaid customers, again, are the value-conscious customers with low-income consumers. T-Mobile has Metro PCS. If you combine those two companies, they will control 60% of the what's called the facilities-based prepaid market. So in other words, the prepaid market of, of, of companies that have their own facilities, have their own infrastructure. That's an awful lot uh, of the market, and that's just that is absolutely going to result in higher prices for the consumers who can bear it the least. We know that going from four to three is is mathematically twenty five percent less competition. But what do we know? I mean, is there evidence from other markets in terms of going from four to three? What we should expect? Oh, absolutely. So both in the Netherlands and Austria, they went from four to three and prices went up by double digits. In Canada, where they are, it's now been over a decade where they've been trying to create a fourth new competitor, same thing, double-digit increases. Uh, you know, the European Commission did a study showing that in markets that, went, that had, you know, three competitors as opposed to four, the prices were much higher. So there, there's tons of evidence. I do hear people say, well, Europe is a different market than the United States, if anything, if anything, it's smaller. So they should be. You would think that three would be okay, right? But even in those smaller markets, the shrinking from four players to three players have have resulted in huge uh, price increases. So yeah, we have a lot of evidence in that regard. And again, even more compelling, the evidence on the record, which by the way, the companies, the merchant companies, don't dispute. So what they say is, well. You're going to get more for your money, right? <laughs> so it'll be a lower price per gig. But that, right. assumes, that assumes that the customer is willing to pay for an increase no matter how small. And again, let's get back to who we're talking about when we, when we talk about these two companies. These are consumers for whom maybe having a cell phone is a huge burden. Maybe that even takes food off the table. We can we can talk about 5G and how spectacular it may or may not be, but the fact of the matter is these two companies serve a market that cannot bear 15% price increases. People who know me could say that I am occasionally insensitive, so this question is is a little <laughs> provocatively framed. But so let's just assume for a second prices go up. Okay, so that does harm some families. Um, but is mobile really that important? I mean, you know, as you know, I've spent most of my time working on fixed access, access right. to the home. So if we lose this battle, what's the big deal? Is mobile that important? This, again, getting back to low-income families, they're the ones that rely on mobile. They're the ones that can't afford a fixed connection. And I don't know what your fixed connection costs, but I can tell you that, you know, uh, well, my triple play always creeps up to $200 a month, and the broadband part is $80 a month. So, And, that, and I live in Washington, D.C., and I actually have three choices. So, you know, what we have here is a situation where, Unfortunately, for good or for ill, 
some people are reliant upon mobile for the foreseeable future. Look, I'm with you. I want everybody to be connected to fiber and to have, you know, gigabit speeds, but we are so far away from that. You know, maybe in 10 years and 20 years, we're having a different conversation about mobile. But in 2019, the conversation we're having is that I think about a third of poor families or more rely upon uh, mobile broadband to do things like their homework, right, and to look for a job. It's it's not an ideal situation. I, I, I did a speed test. I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I did a speed test uh, on my on my mobile just, you know, for, for the heck of it. And I was getting, you know, five megabits per second uh, down and actually six up, which was interesting. I got more up than down, but those speeds are so poor. But that's a, that's the state of the, the market that we have today is that low-income Americans rely on this on this slow service. Right. And I, I did say I was being provocative. I think that's incredibly important because it, the price of accessing the internet is already far too high relative yep. to its importance for the future of our democracy, let alone um, all the other benefits one gets gets from it. Um, but one other thing I just wanted to ask regarding the potential of the merger, and, and we don't have time to go into all the details that I know you could talk about, but it does seem like Sprint and T-Mobile, in part because they're the smaller ones, have historically been a little bit more innovative. And in having them merge we could lose that well absolutely so you know t-mobile was the first carrier to eliminate two-year contracts and provide unlimited data t-mobile and sprint were the first to allow subscribers to unlock their phones you know both companies fought to match at&t and verizon in coverage speed and reliability i mean t-mobile especially right in some ways they kind of brought sprint along with it when the at&t t-mobile merger was foiled and that was another merger that i testified against uh, you know, T-Mobile all of a sudden became the uncarrier. They brought in John Ledger, who, while I disagree with him on this merger, I think is very dynamic and a very good CEO. And they just said, okay, we're just going to go toe-to-toe with the big guys. Uh, and that's been really important. And again, if Sprint goes away and T-Mobile w- would become just about as big in customer size. So Verizon has about 110 million customers AT&T a little over, a little under 100 million, and and this combination, depending on whether they're divestitures or not, would be again around 100 million. So all of a sudden, it's of equal size and power to the other two. Do you think that the incentives are going to be to try to continue to undercut it? No, and and, and it's really important. So in the soap opera that is this merger, uh, you see that every time that there is bad news for the merger. Not only do Sprint and T-Mobile stocks go down, but Verizon and AT&T stocks go down. And, and while Wall Street is not necessarily magical, what it's saying is that Wall Street believes that this merger is good for AT&T and Verizon because it will lead to greater coordination and, between the three companies and higher prices. So in other words, T-Mobile will no longer be the, the feisty uncarrier trying to undercut those two companies, but they will work in concert with them. 
One thing I'll, I'll say that we don't have time to get into is that you and Harold Feld and others who oppose the AT&T T-Mobile merger made a number of predictions that came true. Uh, AT&T and mm-hmm. T-Mobile at the time predicted that there would be doom if they weren't allowed to merge. Um, yep. So, um, But I want to ask you the final question. What has surprised you about this? You said it's gone from, you know, it spans the gamut from wrong to weird in terms of the process. But what has been the most surprising thing for you as this has played out? Weird is really it's absolutely the right word. Well, what's been weird is that you had an FCC chairman who put out a statement. Now, I think we're going about six weeks ago, saying that he would approve this merger. Okay, and he, and he went out on a limb by himself, although he did get his two Republican colleagues to to join in later on in the day. This doesn't happen. Okay, when a merger is either going to be approved or blocked in this space, obviously, the Federal Communications Commission and the Department of Justice, the Antitrust Division, Department of Justice, basically almost simultaneously announce it. You know, maybe it's a couple hours lag, but, you know, in all my 30 years of doing this, I've never seen an FCC chairman go out on a limb like this. That's number one weird thing that happened. That was obviously to place pressure on uh, the Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, a guy named Macon Delrahim. The second weird thing that happened was that 14 state attorneys general, including the attorney general of the District of Columbia, which I live there, so I consider it a state, uh, have sued. So they went ahead of the Department of Justice, and they're suing to block the merger. So that's weird thing number two. Weird thing number three is that for the past, I'd say, three weeks or so, three or four weeks, the antitrust division is trying to broker an agreement where they basically create a new, I call it like a Frankenstein monster, a new fourth carrier, right? Rather than block the merger, so we have four carriers already. Rather than block the merger, and if Sprint wants to get out of the market, it could sell its assets to somebody else, is trying to, you know, kind of cobble, you know, uh, boost mobile here and some spectrum there and sort of create this new fourth carrier. And that's just, that's unprecedented at least in this country, supposedly they did it in Italy. I've heard mixed things about whether it has succeeded or not. But it's now been, like I said, three weeks, a month now, that they've been trying to create this Frankenstein monster. It doesn't seem to be happening, but you know, depending on what reporter you listen to, either you know, a deal is dim- imminent or it's never happening. So it's just the whole thing is strange, most particularly the fact that three FCC commissioners would come out in favor of a merger when at least two of them have not even seen the decision. So the FCC hasn't circulated, the FCC chairman has not sent around his decision approving the merger. And so that's just really, that, that's weird, and frankly, I think that's wrong. I mean, that's, that, that's highly irregular, uh, but, you know, put the state's lawsuit on top of that and this, this Frankenstein process on top of that, and you have an unprecedented situation as far as merger review is concerned. Well, I'm glad that we have you to um, give us some a sense of, of history, although you have not been around since the dinosaurs, as you remind <laughs> me. <laughs> Chris, can I just uh, mention one other thing? Because I do think it's important, and it is history. Mm-hmm. It's something I have written about for the Benton Foundation. This is not the first time that there has been strong political pressure to basically, you know, drop a major antitrust proceeding. Okay, so uh, during Reagan's time, 
the Justice Department was was in court trying to break up AT&T. Okay, so this was like 1984 or so. And the head of the antitrust division at the time, so in other words, Macon Del Rahim's predecessors, a guy named Bill Baxter, was litigating this case, and he was getting pressure from Casper Weinberger, who was the Secretary of Defense, from Malcolm Baldridge, who was the Secretary of Commerce, and from Ed Meese, who at the time was counselor to President Reagan and eventually became uh, Attorney General, to drop the case. And he refused. Uh, he just, he, re- he absolutely refused. He said, we're going to litigate this, this to the eyeballs, and it led to the, to the breakup of AT&T. And I, I've been urging Macon Delrahim to follow his predecessor and push away Ajit Pai's pressure, push away whatever pressure is coming from the White House. Supposedly there is. It's not coming from the president. He's got other things on his mind. Uh, and just do the right thing and join the states to block this merger. But we'll see what happens. Yes, the uh, the breakup of AT and T uh, was really fascinating in, in part because of all the the conflicts of interest because AT and T had employed everyone I think at the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, what's similar is actually so Bill Barr, the uh, Attorney General today, is recused from this case because he has AT and T stock. It's actually Time Warner stock that became AT and T stock when AT and T bought Time Warner. In Reagan's time, William French Smith, who was the attorney general, was recused. I don't remember for what reason. I think it was a similar reason, some sort of financial interest. So you have an absolutely parallel decision, except the kind of political pressure on Baxter coming from the Secretary of Defense and, and the Secretary of Commerce, who went to the president and said, make him stop. And Reagan at that point didn't care and, and just kind of blew it off. But um far more than what Del Rahim is getting today. So, you know, my message to Macon Del Rahim, who I actually respect, is, you know, follow your predecessor, Bill Baxter. Actually, Baxter is, is, is a hero of Del Rahim's. He's mentioned Baxter in like five different speeches. Follow your hero, follow your predecessor, and just join the states to block this merger and let the chips fall where they may. Yes, exactly. And and who knows which young lawyers may be watching Del Rahim and inspired by this to break up the next uh, attempt in 20 or 30 years for something similar. <laughs> 20 or 30 years? I think it's going to come sooner than that. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gigi. Chris, it's really been a pleasure. So let me bring Hibba back into it. Hibba, um, what did you think about the uh, the Gigi discussion? Did you have any takeaways from it? I thought Gigi made a really strong case uh, for why the merger should be stopped, and also talking a little bit about the history of telecom mergers before. Um, she touched on how there is hope, right? Because AT&T and T-Mobile made an attempt to merge, um, and I didn't know a lot about that history, so I thought that was super informative. Um, she did talk about how this time it's a little bit different, and there are things that she hasn't seen before going on behind the scenes. I'm overall hopeful after listening to her. What did you think, Chris? I very much agree with your assessment. And um, it's not just because one of my favorite phrases is that um, when all hope is lost, there's nothing left to worry about, um, which I think is really captures a lot. There's always hope. There's, uh, there's wonderful opportunities. We're learning from this. Uh, many of us did not expect to stop the AT&T T-Mobile merger. Um, and oddly enough, um, Gigi Sohn's group Public Knowledge was really essential in making that happen. Um, but I, I think even 
you know, even a situation in which we lose this, the question will be, how do we move on to the next thing? And I think people really have to think about these issues as a long-term fight to build local power, to stop monopoly. And that means that even if we lose battles, we figure out how to move forward as best we can. Because what's important is the longer issue of who has power in this country, our communities uh, or uh, you know, the big centralized businesses or even centralized political power uh, elsewhere. So um, you know, I think there's tremendous hope to stop this merger. Um, and, and I think that one of the things I'm hopeful about is that as we're fighting these mergers, we are focused on how we can build the bigger movement for stopping monopoly in general. Right. That is our goal here at ILSR. Um, so, Chris, you also talked to Blair. What are we going to hear from him? Okay, so let's bring on the interview with Blair. Um, Blair Levin um, has is someone who's been very active in also, I think, um, advocating for the public interest. Um, since writing the National Broadband Plan, he's been at various think tanks. He's currently at Brookings. Uh, one of the things he often does is write uh, op-eds or even shorter pieces um, with uh, people who he has strong disagreements with in which they can demonstrate um, where there is strong agreement across party lines or across different values. And I think those are valuable pieces, even though those might be the ones I disagree with some of the most. Um, he also provides equity research on policy issues for an organization called New Street Research. Great. So let's hear from Blair. Now I'm talking with Blair Levin. Uh, Blair is uh, is someone who's given us a lot of advice over the years. Uh, someone I think really gets things right. Uh, since writing the National Broadband Plan, he's been at various think tanks, uh, currently at Brookings, uh, but he also provides equity research on policy issues uh, for an organization called New Street Research. So welcome back to uh, to another conversation, Blair. Thank you very much. So let's jump right into the merger. You you do a lot of analysis of um, of all kinds of mergers around tech and telecom type stuff. Um, this is one that I've read a lot of things you've written about, but I want to ask you very specifically whether you think we would see more investment in uh, 5G type networks and in, in general better networks if the merger happens uh, or if it stopped and we remain with the, the four competitors. So I think there are uh, multiple views on that. Uh, but the, the most important thing to understand is investment is a multifactorial uh, equation. In other words, the single biggest driver, in my opinion, of 5G investment will be demand. Right now, when you talk to Wall Street people and when you read um, serious industry reports, as opposed to those reports which are prepared for um, D.C. officials, which usually include a lot of hype that, frankly, is not true. Um, what you see is there's a lot of demand for enterprise 5G, but a high level of uncertainty about any mass market 5G. So to be clear, then, enterprise meaning larger, medium-sized, perhaps, but larger businesses. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Big institutions. Mm -hmm. the, the question is, what are the applications that would cause people like you and me to say, I want to upgrade my service to a 5G service and I want to buy a new phone, which is a 5G compatible phone. You know, sometimes industry answers with a, we'll build it and they will come. Sometimes they answer with a, well, no one knew what the applications were for 4G and we did it. There are lots of different things we can say, but, but the single most important thing I want to say is that as to the question of what will drive investment, the merger is part of it, but there are a lot of other factors out there. If we hit a recession, 
that could affect investment. If suddenly um, inflation starts to flare up uh, because the Fed got it wrong, that could affect um, the level of investment. If there's, a, if there's an infrastructure plan in 2021 where government wants to try to create smart infrastructure, that could drive investment. But as to the merger, I think the, um, uh, there is a good case to be made that it would accelerate T-Mobile's investment, and then that would accelerate um, AT&T and Verizon's. But a big question mark to me is whether the current negotiations uh, between T-Mobile and DISH result in a deal between the two of them. Um, and then, then the deal will almost certainly pass scrutiny by the Department of Justice. Then it has to get through the litigation with the states. But if all that happens um, and DISH is investing at the same time, particularly because DISH will be investing in a brand new network without legacy in, um, uh, networks, that could accelerate investment. No, I think it's really interesting. And what, and actually, this is really what I wanted to get to in inviting you on is not so much to talk about whether we'd see more 5G faster or not. But I think this question, which is presented often to the public um, and to policymakers as, um, you know, if there's a merger, there will be more investment as some sort of certainty. And, and I wanted to get a sense from you um, how Wall Street thinks about these sorts of things. Because I think Wall Street thinking, although I rail against it in many ways would be an improvement over a lot of inside the beltway thinking uh, in evaluating mergers and things like that. Yeah, I, I would say two things. First of all, Wall Street uh, understands that the world is about probabilities, not certainties. Um, and, and I think it's important that we understand that you, you can have a view that it's 90% certain or 70% certain or 50% certain, but nothing in the real world that matters is 100% certain. And, and, and in Washington, uh, that is really a bad way of thinking about it, because in Washington, you don't actually own a problem. You own a narrative and you should never be anything other than 100 percent certain of the correctness of your narrative. <laughs> but that's just not the way the, the real world works. The, the second thing I would say is Wall Street. And this is one reason I really actually enjoy uh, working uh, with Wall Street investors is they actually care about real facts. They care about real data. They care about real things. And they're not heavily influenced by sound bites because if you make investment on the basis of sound bites, you're going to lose all your money uh, and then you won't have a job. Um, on the other hand, there are people in Washington who always make decisions based on sound bites and they manage to keep their job. So it's a very different kind of uh, <laughs> situation. And I definitely prefer the environment in which there is a premium on actually being accurate. If someone's listening to this show and, and they're someone who has ambitions of being, uh, you know, there probably already are maybe some kind of policymaker, but they really want to have good information. Should they read the Wall Street Journal? Like where, where should they go to get some of the Wall Street, um, you know, thinking? Um, presumably New Street Research would be one place. <laughs> uh, I, I think pretty much all of my competitors, um, but particularly the competitors who do what I don't do, which is the fundamental analysis of the companies are outstanding. Uh, in the telecom space, um, people like Craig Moffat have been around a very long time. They know the business. They're not always right on the stock picks because that's about probability. 
um, but you can trust their numbers to be more accurate, um, and certainly they're much more logical. When I read speeches by policymakers in, in Washington, I'm constantly finding logical flaws, flaws of that, et cetera. I don't find that when I read competitors' works, uh, which I sometimes get to do. So I would say if you read any one uh, analyst, you're probably better off than <laughs> reading any speech by uh, a government official. And so the last thing I want to bug you about is um, relating to where the money comes from for 5G and what kind of decisions are made. We've talked in the past on other shows, and you've written very well about the foolishness of the federal government overruling local authority on matters of rights of way management, the fees that they charge and that sort of thing, noting that these sorts of things are probably not going to significantly change the amount of investment, particularly in rural areas, because profitability in one area does not mean you'll invest in a different area. Um, so I don't want to so much rehash that, but I'm more curious about like, if we just think about any given scenario moving forward, where does the money come in terms of how much 5G will be invested, whether it'll be $50 billion or $150 billion or $300 billion in coming years? Um, it comes from investors who expect to get that money returned to them with significant profit. And this is actually a really important point um, that I think is often neglected by policymakers who somehow believe industry is going to invest $150 billion, sell services to exactly the same customers at lower prices. <laughs> right. That that's is not going to happen. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to ask you. <laughs> I'm going to now contradict myself and say there is a certainty. It is 100% certain that no investor will invest money to be able to sell a service to the same customer at a lower price. Unless, and I, you know, there again, these are, there's lots of caveats, unless there is a threat that they're going to actually lose all of their customers because someone else is doing it. And that's, um, you know, uh, kind of innovation um, sometimes does cause investment to actually lower prices. One of the really interesting things uh, that is not being discussed in the Sprint T-Mobile deal, but I think is an interesting policy point, is um, uh, there, one of the arguments T-Mobile makes is that Sprint cannot survive as a, a 5G competitor. This is not a failing firm defense, but it's what we refer to as a flailing firm defense, which is as the industry moves forward, Sprint won't be able to move forward. I think it's an interesting question whether in a world of 5G, whether a lower-priced 4G company would put some price constraints on 5G services. I don't know the answer to that. Intuitively, I think it would, but I think that's what, you know, that requires a lot more economic analysis before I, I would make an answer. But the question is, from a consumer perspective, if you had a choice of 4G at 40 bucks or 5G at 80 bucks, which would you buy? Um, and would that 40 buck 4G service cause 5G prices to be lowered. Um, my, my point is simply that the money has to come from the sale of services in the future. And by the way, uh, you know, as we're talking about investment, there could be, the merger could lead to a short-term um, significant investment, but maybe longer term, it would slow down investment because if you have three players, traditionally you get less investment than if you have uh, four players. So. 
I actually happen to be a person who uses Ting, which uses the Sprint network in my case. And yeah. um, I can't remember the last time I was mad at my phone for taking too long to download something. I mean, I just, it's not how right. I use my phone. You know? <laughs> right. People talk about things like remote surgery. A, that isn't a very big market. B, uh, <laughs> you can already do remote surgery unless what you think is going to happen is doctors are going to do surgery while driving in cars. Well, we don't have that capacity today. 5G theoretically gives it to us, but I don't want my surgeon to be driving at the same time. You know, friends don't let their surgeons drive and do surgery at the same time. It's a whole new level of complexity to the trolley problem. What if one of the people right. is doing surgery? <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, God, law school will be so much more interesting. Um, uh, another thing they talk about is autonomous vehicles. There is no car company that is building a car that to, be, to be an autonomous vehicle that will depend on 5G. Zero. And the reason is very simple. You can't build it unless you were 100% certain that by the time the car was on the road, 100% of all roads would have 5G service. That's never going to happen. Are there some benefits of 5G to autonomous vehicles? Yeah. One of the really interesting things to me about 5G is that the wireless industry shows, and they were making reasonable business judgments to use the friendliness of the FCC to get a little bit of money from the cities, about $3 billion, which in the context of a $100 billion, $200 billion, $300 billion capital expenditure for 5G isn't that much money. But they have now completely pissed off one of the largest potential buyers of 5G services, mm -hmm. which are cities. Cities are part one of the few institutions that have tremendous mobility needs, police, fire, trash pickup, et cetera. It can use 5G in all kinds of ways to improve the way traffic flows and other kinds of services. And instead of working with the cities uh, to make that happen, they got the FCC to essentially do a wealth transfer in which cities have to turn over billions of dollars, a few billion dollars, and the companies don't have to do anything. I think this is a huge mistake for lots of different reasons. But one of them is cities should be one of the big drivers of 5G. And we're not focused on that at all. Instead, we're focused on some things that actually don't matter. One other question, and it actually gets back to the robotic surgery and the 5G cars and things like that, is I think the whole ideas of insurance and liability, I think, are a little bit lost among policymakers. They get lost a little bit. And that's, I can't imagine a lot of these promised things happening unless the carriers wanted to take liability that they would guarantee that their service would be uninterrupted during these important periods. And I just don't see how that would work. It's a great question. It'll be very interesting to see how liability issues work with things like autonomous vehicles because people will be killed. Uh, probably many fewer people will be killed, but nonetheless, in an individual case, uh, there's a question of, is it the car company? Is it the software? Is it the person who made the particular camera that malfunctioned? Uh, or is it actually a driver who did something? I mean, these uh, it will take at least 10 to 20 years for this kind of tort litigation to work itself through. But your big point is correct. You can't make huge investments unless you have some notion of what your risk is for liability uh, for the failure of that service. Currently, you can't sue your phone company if there's some bad consequence 
of the service going down for five seconds. But, you know, the contracts, and I, like everyone else, I've never read the contract, but I'm 100% <laughs> certain uh, that AT&T and Verizon have something in that, or, or T-Mobile have something in it that says they're not liable. Um, but that's part of the reason why it's highly unlikely that uh, a surgeon will rely on it or uh, that they're going to rely on uh, private networks that do make those kind of guarantees as opposed to a best efforts network that simply says we'll do our best. Right. Thank you so much, Blair. It's, uh, it's great to have you back on. Okay. Good talking to you, Chris. So Hiba, I, you know, I've had more time to reflect on this and I've talked with Blair many times over uh, about issues related to this. I'm curious what, what you take away from our discussion. Yeah, I think um, it's really great to have another perspective on an economic argument. Like usually um, a lot of times advocates focus on a moral argument. I feel like we at ILSR and other folks in our area also have an economic argument, but this one has a different flavor, right? It's coming from Wall Street, and sometimes we don't consider those ideas uh, in the same way. So I think it was great to hear from Blair, and I particularly loved that line that he said about um, Wall Street is about probabilities, not certainties. Like, I think you and him both touch on how people think that you can predict what's going to happen and Wall Street will always act a certain way. But he really opened up that world and was like, actually, uh, we've got some indicators, but we're always guessing. And that's part of the game. I I take a lot of that away as well. I mean, I, I feel like there are times when we're working on policies, whether they're local or national, and we may forget that People may disagree with us. People may be ignorant of what we're talking about. They get a vote too. Um, you know, the the best policy may not necessarily be the one that it works out best in your mind, but the one that will adapt to um, our messy world. Um, and and I think about this a lot lately. Whether it's the the busing controversy that's uh, been we've been, been reminded of from the debates with um, um, Senator Harris and um, and um, former Vice President Biden, um, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, everyone has a vote and, and I'm not just talking about the ballot box. I mean, how they react in their actions. And so, um, the thinking about things in terms of probabilities, I think is very valuable and a reminder that, you know, even things that have very slim odds happen. Um, you know, there's a saying that a million to one odds happen eight times a day in New York because there's like 8 million people there. So um, it's, a, it's a good reminder to, to be humble, I think, and, and when we're thinking about these policies and to make sure we're building adaptable policies. Um, it's also a, a good reminder that um, we don't know exactly what will happen as a result of different mergers. Um, you know, I've opposed many mergers and they have not all um, been awful. And frankly, um, you know, some of these mergers that we've seen like AT&T, Time Warner, I think there's less of a concern that AT&T will ruin the broadband market, although they'll try, um, than that they'll just destroy HBO as being a wonderful source of uh, video content um, because of their terrible management. So, um, you know, it's these things have many different factors, um, and sometimes we get too focused on one or two of them, and it's worth remembering that. So you did watch the debates. <laughs> I at least paid attention to uh, the uh, the outcomes. Um, definitely, right? That's the important part. 
Yeah, you you know, uh, it, it's I, I really resent that we're talking about 2020 so early. I've probably said this before, but at the same time, I don't feel like I can start paying attention um, next summer and then be totally clueless as to how we got where we are. So, you know, we're all we're all getting sucked along in this um, sort of a, the break of a glacial dam. Um, you know, so there's not a lot we can do about that. Um, uh, but I wanted to force a recommendation in here, even though um, uh, we don't always do that. Um, and that's because I'm very excited about um, a new report that we just put out about rural broadband. Um, we did this report 18 months ago or so showing where co-ops are offering fiber optic service across the United States. We've updated that with the most recent data from the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, my colleagues, Katie um, Hannah Trosel and Hannah Bonestro uh, did really great work showing how much growth there's been. And oh boy, I'll tell you, there's actually more hope for high quality broadband in uh, rural America than there are in our cities, frankly, where many of us are going to be stuck with a cable monopoly for a long time. So um, that's up on our site. Um, the report is called Cooperatives Fiberize Rural America, a Trusted Model for the Internet Era. And um, that will be something we link to, but also you can just um, find with a search and make sure you're looking at the 2019 version. Yep. Awesome. So we'll definitely put the link in the show page, like Chris said. And thanks, Chris, for joining us today and for doing the interviews. That was Christopher speaking with Gigi Sohn and Blair Levin in separate interviews about the impending Sprint T-Mobile merger. Chris had some help this week from our communications manager, Hibba Murray. The interviews were originally broadcast as episode 77 of the Building Local Power podcast, one of our other informative shows from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We encourage you to subscribe to the Building Local Power podcast and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song, Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 366 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>